0: Joining me as Nature Revisited celebrates its 50th episode. We would like to thank everyone who has tuned in to our podcast over the years. We truly appreciate it. As we celebrate, I would like to thank Melissa, my wife, and Tori, my daughter, for their wonderful support. And to Charles Gagan, my co producer, for his expertise and patience, without whom this podcast would not be possible. I would like to thank all my guests who have joined me on Nature Revisited to share their passion with you, my listeners, and of course, to everyone who has supported us from the beginning. From the first episode with Peter Hatch, Nature Revisited has been on an amazing journey, and I thank you. So for our fiftieth episode, Nature Revisited is honored and thrilled to have Paul Hotkin join me. I have known of Paul Hotkin since his venture with Smith and Hotkin some years ago. More recently, I discovered his book Drawdown, and when I learned that Paul had done a sequel Regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation. I contacted Paul to see if he would join me to talk about the important work he is doing. Here is my conversation with Paul Hotkin. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. Thank you for joining me on Nature Revisited. We could spend a whole episode just on your career and all the things that you have already done, but I think we both agree there is something more urgent that we both want to talk about, and that is the climate crisis and your new book, Regeneration, which is your latest effort to help solve this crisis.
1: First of all, thank you so much for inviting me and engaging this conversation. It's obviously a conversation that I enjoy or want to have with as many people as possible. I don't mean to have a conversation in the sense that I know you don't listen up. I don't mean it that way at all. I consider myself a journalist. A good journalist is somebody who knows they don't know and they have curiosity and they research, they discover, they listen, they read. And from that, they create a text, a narrative, a book, maybe an article, whatever it is, that actually helps other people follow that same path. So what is drawdown? is that point in time when greenhouse gases peak and go down on a year-to-year basis. In other words, reversing what we've done for the last 200 years, which is to increase CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. And so... The only thing that makes sense to me is to go the other way, not to <laughs> leave them up there. Drawdown is to reverse global warming. That is, can we just go back the other way, please? Not just talk about net zero, uh, which doesn't really solve anything because net zero means we'll be at 450, 460. not depends when we achieve it, you know, PPM. And we're already seeing the chaos caused by 417 ppm, and we also know that there's a lag time between heating and what happens in the biosphere. And so 450 ppm is climate chaos. Why would we want that as a goal? So that's drawdown.
0: How did that lead to your new book, Regeneration, and why did you use that title?
1: Regeneration as a book was always intended to be the sequel to Drawdown. And I was talking about it before Drawdown, way before Drawdown was even published, I was talking about Regeneration. I think that when you write as an author, you want to be careful not to do too much to keep your focus, and then you keep the reader's focus. And so Drawdown map measure modeled the 100 most substantive solutions to in global warming. The question I got Again and again, after that, speaking, people would raise their hand and say, what should I do? Tell me what to do. It's like so interesting. And even my wife said, you know, when I was starting the second book, she said, well, look, at it. if you don't tell me what to do in this book, I'm leaving you. <laughs> it's like, like, okay. So regeneration is several purposes and meanings and not just that.
0: How does language both help and hinder us when it comes to understanding this crisis?
1: The language that we've used around climate has basically guaranteed that most of people on the world are disengaged from it. And you say, how could that be? The science came first, and that was very much about future existential threat. That term has been used a million times. No question about that. The other thing is that it evoked fear or threat, which is understandable. The science does that. The science is picked up by journalists and activists, but activists then themselves kind of went to blame, shame, and guilt. You know, these companies doing this, and that's bad, and SUVs are bad. There was a lot of activist rhetoric about blaming and saying, you're the cause. Again, they were right, as was the scientists, But where both kind of missed the beat was those communications actually do not incite people to act, to do things. They don't bring people together. In fact, if you keep repeating threat and fear and blame and all the doom and these things, which I'm not arguing as in terms of the analyses, but if you keep doing that, uh, we all go numb. We just numb out. And more importantly than that, future existential threat is not something that the human brain responds to we are here and because our ancestors were wired for current existential threat. And they did a really good job about that. And that's food and warmth and clothing and security and safety and so forth. That's what our ancestors did and that's how our brains are wired. And so I felt like we needed to really change the language around climate because the threat is not only existential, it is actually current. It had to change in a number of ways. One is it had to... Be welcoming to people. It had to actually create a sense of possibility instead of a sense of probability. In fact, we no longer have a probability of what's going to happen. We're seeing it, we're reading it, we're watching it. And climate has changed from something that's conceptual to experiential. Okay. So regeneration is actually the way to reverse global warming. Essentially, people have been talking about climate as if it was something else, other, like, you know, we're going to fix it. We need to fix it. Well, what's it? Climate change, the term is interesting because we're acting as if climate change is the bad thing. Well, the climate changes every nanosecond. If it didn't change, we wouldn't have springtime and crops and food and so many other things. Climate is definitely changing, but you can't fight change. What you can do is reverse the trend of greenhouse gas emissions. That's drawdown. The way to do that, though, is to recognize that the atmosphere and the biosphere are the same thing. What we must recognize is that the path to reversing global warming is a path to doing many, many, many other things that we need to do, and that is the path to regeneration is creating more life and basically putting life at the center of every act and decision because that's not true right now. The thing about regeneration is that it's innate to human beings. Every human being does it every single day, some do it more than others, but they take care of themselves, they take care of their children, they take care of their family, they take care of their home, they take care of their garden, they take care of their pets. And so regeneration is innate. That is what it means to be a human being. Now, have we gone way off the path? Yes, we have. But we are human beings. This is what we do. We're social. We come together. We solve problems. Thinking that nature is other, that the climate is other, the atmosphere is other, thinking that we're separate is what got us into this situation in the first place, and that somehow these really bright technological genius men are going to fix it for us. And it's just not true. The whole thing has to change, and it has to pivot 180 away from extraction away from taking life, away from degeneration to regeneration. And what that means is that we have to stop thinking about future existential threat and current human needs. And the wonderful thing about the list of solutions is that maybe with one exception, they actually make people's lives better. That is to say, we would want to do these. We should be doing them if we had no idea what was causing extreme weather, or there was not a climate scientist alive, we never invented climatology, we would still want to do them and should do them because they make life better. They create pure water, more fish, more fisheries, you know, better food, better soil, go right down the list in terms of what these solutions do. So it's not as though there's a bunch of solutions over here that are about climate and then we can kind of run our lives and take care of things over here so we don't have that as a threat, they are uh, inseparable.
0: And what is the difference between climate crisis and, let's say, global warming when we come to understanding the crisis?
1: Sure. We're facing the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced. And I dare say may ever face. Who knows? And 98 to 99% of the people on Earth are disengaged. They don't do anything. How do we do that? How did that happen? How could that happen? It goes right to language. It goes to communication. And we've communicated in such a way that people feel like, I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do. I don't understand it people talking about carbon removal or renewable energy or, you know, wind farms, solar farms, all these incredible projects, you know, electric vehicles they can't afford. Somebody else is doing it, and I hope it works because I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to be engaged. I mean, this is the people you know. These are the people who watch documentaries on climate change on Netflix and think they've done something. I'm saying 98 ninety eight to 99% of humanity is not acting. So if we don't create pathways of communication, understanding, and connection that bring us together around this, then we will surely fail. And one way we will surely fail is to not understand if we're not serving current human needs, if we're not serving and improving the lives of the poor, the excluded, children... In the world, we're not serious about that. If we, you know, climate is the most important thing. If we don't get that right, then the rest doesn't matter. And I'm saying the rest does matter because that is the cause and that is the cure and that is the solution. And the solution's right under our nose, you know, it's not out there somewhere. And that is the regeneration, the restoration, the rejuvenation of life on Earth. And that means every culture, every being, every child, every forest, every ocean, every farmland. I mean, it means the whole tamale.
0: I've had the opportunity to preview the book, and it's a truly amazing book. There's a lot there. Can you kind of share with us how you would would recommend the reader of that book to approach it?
1: Well, every reader is going to approach it differently. This one and drawdown are the same. You could read it middle out. You could start at the back and go backwards. You could start at the beginning and go forwards in a typical book. Either way will work. One thing about regeneration is it it basically says the cause of global warming is a profound disconnection between people, between people and nature, and we have broken the connections within nature itself, you know, the habitat fragmentation, pesticides, poisoning, clear-cutting, etc., So really, it's about reconnecting the broken strands of life on the planet, both culturally, socially, humanly, biologically, oceans, water, everything. But to talk about the different sectors, land and oceans and forests and wilding and cities and food, etc., but within those things, connections, to make connections like you might not have understood or known. And so that as you read the book, what I'm trying to do is create space for people to come to their own conclusion about both cause and cure. Because it actually creates the spaciousness for people to make up their own mind. Because that's what's going to happen anyway. Nobody can really change anybody else's mind. It's hard enough to change our own mind. And so we try to create a book or I try to create a book that is interesting, that is compelling, but is not a polar bear on an ice floe, or a calving glacier or a hurricane blowing off the roof of a building in the Bahamas. As you open it up, then you look at the image, and go, oh, wow, look at that. What does grazing ecology mean? I never heard of it. What does trophy cascades mean? What does that got to do with the price of bananas and climate change? Well, it does. You know? <laughs> and you, but when you read it, you go, oh, wow, God, I never saw it. I never made
0: that connection before. You know? What is the difference between preservation and restoration? And how important is the distinction?
1: I think preservation came out of the environmental movement, conservation, preservation, which is like put a fence around it, make sure you, it, it stays the way it, it is. Don't let it go anywhere. <laughs> Don't let it get worse. You know, restoration is really regeneration, actually. I think the the Nature Conservancy learned this early when they bought these big ranches in New Mexico and they took off every single animal off the ranch, fenced it off, and then they watched the land degrade completely. They realized they needed animals. They needed ruminant. All these landscapes co-evolved with animals. You take the animals off and things devolve. So preservation was very much a movement about that, not when applied to buildings, it's about keeping the building intact, but applied to ecosystems, it's kind of a fruitless task because ecosystems are going to change and grow and evolve. And so that's where regeneration comes in.
0: What is rewilding and how important is wilderness.
1: Wilding is letting nature return to itself, letting the human made or the human influence changes on the landscape stop, and then letting nature take over, essentially. Poster child of this is what Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell did in Sussex, England. Charlie inherited from his family this 3,500-acre farm that was sailing, and It was on Sussex clay, which is known to be the most difficult soil in the world. It turns to concrete in the summer and turns to mush in the winter. They tried to do everything they could to make the farm productive and so forth and spent more money and better equipment and everything and nothing worked. And they decided under the influence of a Dutch ecologist to actually just take out all the interior fencing, put a ring fence around the 3,500 acres and let it return to nature. And it's one of the most incredible stories of rewilding. The trees came back, animals came back, insects came back, birds came back, uh, water came back, lakes came back. (laughs) And the only thing they really did was they put in animals that were originally there. Uh, Now people do safari tours there. You know, they go there to look at things that hadn't been seen in England for 600 years. The nesting storks hadn't been seen there for 600 years. Turtledoves were almost gone. There's 27 nesting pairs there. The purple emperor butterfly was extinct. It's there. They showed up. I mean, it goes on and on and on. They have more red-listed species on their farm than do all the conservation areas set aside by the U.K. in all of the U.K., and it's only 3,500 acres. What it shows you is that the Earth will restore, regenerate itself if we get out of the way. It not only does it, but it does it in ways that are unpredictable and miraculous, almost in terms of how quickly that happens. And so that's that's what rewilding is about. And I think Isabella and Charlie Braille they've really inspired a movement all around the, all around the Earth right now of people taking farms that have been played out and that aren't productive and returning them to
0: nature. So my next question, what is indigeneity? Indigeneity is just a noun of the qualities, the
1: teachings, the understandings, the observational science of indigenous cultures. The value of indigeneity or indigenous cultures is that They have been on the land for three, four, ten thousand, sometimes fifteen thousand years. And out of that experience, they're still here because they understood where they lived and they understood where they lived and how to live there using what I call observational science, which is a science based on observation of what's going on rather than empirical science, which is hypothetical and has to be repeated to be true. And what indigenous people knew and everyone knows if you live outside is nothing repeats. It can't repeat. It never does and never will. So what does happen is patterns and that is so you have basically people developing ways of understanding their forests, their grasslands, their arctic lands. In the case of Yupik and others on the Bering Strait in Alaska, they have ways of understanding how to live there that allowed them to not only endure but to thrive uh, over thousands of years. And those observations are acutely scientific because they're the science of place, that is of that place. And they pass down in their language and in their stories the understanding of how to live in that region, on that land, and that prairie, in that forest, and so forth, in ways that allowed them to thrive. And so the way we have treated land, that is, we being the West colonists, basically, the settlers, has destroyed it everywhere, everywhere, without exception. That is degeneration. So to regenerate doesn't mean you go back to... How indigenous people lived it means understanding the value in their observational science in their cultures in their ceremonies in the ways they related to the land the Oshawa people don't have a word for nature they didn't other the place they didn't make it other like oh there's nature out there and we're people they didn't see any separation between a human being and nature itself, so they had no word for it. We can't conceive of that because we came out of those, the Enlightenment science, you know, which did the, quite the opposite, which is if you kept, kept analyzing and separating things into smaller and smaller pieces, you could figure out the whole, and of course that isn't the case. So that's what indigenous a is about.
0: So describe, if you would, the concept of extinction of experience.
1: The extinct experience is another word for it called shifting baseloads, and that is that you think the world was the way you experience it, but actually it wasn't. It was the way it is now, it was not the way it was 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So my great-great-grandfather, who came to California in 1849, described in letters seeing Richardson Bay, which is where Sausalito and Tigran Belvedere are and so forth and said you couldn't see the water for all the birds. There was just so many birds that came in there that it looked like you could just walk across them all the way to the peninsula and now you'd be lucky to see Arctic turns now, and no ducks and no geese. That's shifting baseload. That's the extinction experience. If we're going to reverse global warming, we need to address current human needs rather than an imagined dystopian future.
0: I, know, I want to give you the, the opportunity to share with my listeners what you would like to share with them about this book.
1: I think all of us have experienced what can you do about climate? Or this is what you can do. Or the 20 most important things you can do and all that sort of stuff, you being this individual. When I started drawdown, down, I Googled one of the 10 top solutions, 20 top solutions, and they were all individuated. And like the Union of Concerned Scientists said put a power strip in your home entertainment center. It's like, you've got to be kidding. Or use cold water and washing machine. Cool. Recycle, right? It's like, Unless you had an IQ lower than room temperature, you, kn- you knew that maybe these are good things to do, even though you didn't have a home entertainment center. But you knew that they were insufficient to the task at hand, that we have this global immense problem and so forth. And people are saying, put cold water you know, in your washing machine. So here you have the individual doing things that are not unimportant. I don't mean that at all but are not sufficient, and they know that, and then they're looking to others to fix the problem when, in fact, the solution is in between both. And what I mean by that is there is no such thing as an individual. It's an identity we wake up with every morning, and every one of us is a part of a larger network of people, our family for sure, our neighborhood, our community, our companies, our cities, our clubs, our group, our people we go fishing with, we have these complex networks actually that define us and that make our lives both pleasurable and reasonable and possible. That is where change comes from. We, that's who we are, you know, and that's what it's going to take to reverse global warming and so forth is people coming together in ways that are localized, regional, municipal, as opposed to thinking it's going to happen someplace else somehow.
0: So the subtitle of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, and your book shows how that can be done.
1: What we need to be now is courageous and fearless. One of the things I say in the book, our beliefs do not change our actions. We just think they do. Our actions change our beliefs. Our actions change other people's beliefs. And so what we need to do is just act, but not wait around Not think that what I do isn't sufficient, not think that somebody else will do it. No, it's time for everybody to act.
0: Can you share with us a little bit of what's at the very end of your book, which you call One More Thing?
1: I think the first sentence says, it's not your job to save the planet. Uh, And the idea of saving the earth is a heavy burden and you can't do it anyway. And I also talked about carbon and, you know, this idea that carbon is carbon pollution. I said that's complete nonsense, no such thing. Carbon is part of everything we need, you know, everything we eat, we drink, we touch, you know, everything that's alive, everything that's delicious. (laughs) It's Every miracle we see is. And the thing is, we know how we, we know how what we did. We know we double glazed the planet with carbon. We know how we did it. There's no secret about that. We know how we are continuing to do it. We know how to stop it and to reverse it. We really do. We don't need to know more. And the other thing about carbon to understand is that it's food for the earth to regenerate life on earth. And when we feed the earth, we will heal the climate. Nature never makes a mistake. Only we do. Nature's never making a mistake, never has, never will. The climate is just fine. Climate is adjusting and adapting to what we are doing here. What we have to understand is to bring our lives in alignment with biology, our products, our cities, our agriculture, everything we do to should bring it in life as biology. So that's a 180 pivot away from degeneration to regeneration is putting life at the center of every act and decision. Can't do it overnight. We have to think about it. We should learn. But if we don't have that commitment to regeneration, to putting life at the center of who we are, what we do, what we stand for, what we mean, what our purpose is to be here on earth at this time, then why are we here, really? Why are we here? And so in a sense, we're being homeschooled by the planet and she is a beautiful teacher and we'll be given a lesson every day. All we have to do basically is say thank you and act. Does it mean a change in your life? I hope so. Something I left out though, was something that Gary Snyder, the poet said, looking at the situation we are in today, do not feel guilty. You're not useless, not a helpful emotion. What we need to feel and do is fall in love. Let's love this place, this beautiful home. That's what we need, love, not guilt.
0: My conversation with Paul Hotkin about his latest book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. It is truly an important book. I hope you will also share Nature Revisited with friends, family and colleagues and encourage them to subscribe to Nature Revisited on their podcast servers. The music for this episode was Oklahoma Wind Speed Measurement Club by Ben Cosgrove from his latest album, The Trouble with Wilderness? Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will continue to explore the first 50 episodes of Nature Revisited and join me for the next 50. And in the meantime, do remember. We are nature.